Sana LeVay is a Canadian poet, songwriter, editor, and professor. They are the author of A Stranger Leaf, Kalarno, and Sonnets Shakespeare. Sonnets Shakespeare was a Quillet Choir Book of the Year. In 2014, they edited the Best Canadian Poetry in English Anthology. Their chapbook, Anima Canadensis, won the 2017 BP Nicol Chapbook Award. They teach creative writing in English at Vancouver Island University and are a poetry editor at Brick Books. Sonnet Lebay, welcome to the creative process. Hi Mia, thanks for having me. So you're going to read to us a bit from your collection, Sonnets Shakespeare. Just set it up for us, the piece that you've selected. I'm going to read from Sonnet 18 or Poem 18. And each poem in this book is a overwriting or a through writing, a, a threading of Shakespeare's original language. So my poem 18 has Shakespeare's sonnet 18, the, the entire text of it is kind of buried. I had tried to write a blurb of the book as a poem in a way. So it's a good introduction. Sonnets Shakespeare's syllabics stomp on patriarchies. Sonnets Shakespeare throats the bummers of daddy mythologies art, movement, cruelty, oversimplifying bros, and more. Their temper wasn't suited to crouching in the winds of dudes. In Sonnets Shakespeare, they're the darling of budding poets who femme with varying abandon. Slummy lumber sexuals are pleased hard by the masculine split open in Sonnets metaphoric ta-da. This verse comes at William's sonnet like a thought boss as though it's a plot they have their eye on. As if heaven shines from his craft, he's anthologized, but soft. They enter his space like a golden boy. Their complexion dims not a smidge. Their rhymes are handsome and very fair to Falstaff and Romeo's father. But every empire in some time declines by chance or nature's changing climate. They rise, of course, their angelouing of great poetries is karmically determined. Do they scrubjugate ethically? Between the bard's consonants and vowels, they gum their ohms. Their letters shall not fade, nor lose possession of a stretch of page they call totally fair. Trolling them who Britished Guyana, who Hudsoned Winnipeg, this agriculturing of letters weathers colonial alightings. Beneath hip hop brag, the precious words of England. Chapter and verse sit in this shade. Geeks wish they'd chance to innovate tech as transformatively as Labay's lines invent poetic mode. Though who cares about Western firsts if before long lost atmospheres mean we all can't breathe? Your eyes can see the bard's original song because colored lives letter in this back jacket propaganda. Judge this book by its dissin, genius cover. They hustle erased life, an anti-erasure up in Sonnet Shakespeare. Tell us how you entered that phonic space, made space for yourself, and what kind of conversations did you, were you having with Shakespeare and with yourself to begin? The project itself came out of thinking about the form of erasure, what working in that form could do and, and mean. And at the time, there were conversations about appropriative poetics, where there were specific instances of pretty shady power dynamics around certain poets taking certain texts and, and presenting them as their own and saying, this is, this is just an appropriative poetics move, or I'm using the text simply as material and putting my name on it. So those appropriative poetics conversations happening and then people doing erasure poetries by blocking out and deleting were really interesting to me. And I was looking at critical writing about it and I couldn't find anything that talked about the role of the poet who was doing that as sensorial or as somehow violencing the original text. All of the critical writing was, was quite supportive of using the text as basically like 
marble that you were carving or something like that, just taking the poet's role as very creative, even though they were in effect destroying an original text. So with all of that, I was thinking, you know, my resonance with the word erasure and me thinking about censoring and deleting what somebody else has already said resonates with me as an analogy for being black, being mixed race, being racialized and non-European in spaces that are predominantly Anglo-Canadian and in rooms where classrooms, where playgrounds, where churches, where malls, where certain signifiers of difference would make fitting in harder. One tries very hard, at least I think I did. You can put it that way for what I did as a child, as a teenager, to just try to fit in and make my visible difference as minimal, as invisible as possible. So it's a way of thinking about erasing the self. And so I took that theme and thought, how do I show through a poetic erasure, this dynamic of self erasure and feeling erased? It doesn't have to involve physical violence for you to censor yourself or to stop speaking certain things. So the idea to surround a text and to take an original text that would be like the voice of whoever and embody that force that overwhelms a voice and silences it without, without removing it from the space, letting it be in the space, but effectively um, muting its voice. And if you, if you were called on it, you could say, but it's still right there. It gave me the idea to overwhelm Shakespeare's text instead of just scratch at it or like delete parts of it. So it feels like entering the space of whatever cultural space that Shakespeare occupies is the space that I'm trying to have dialogue with and be inside. So for me, I mean, in some ways, Hamlet might have been the ideal text to overwhelm if I really wanted to, to like be at the center space of maybe where Shakespearean consciousness is in the English speaking world if that's more famous and influential than, than the sonnets. But because my name is Sonnet and my parents gave me that name, my dad's name is Jason and my mom's name is Janet. So they took S-O-N from Jason and N-E-T from Janet, made Sonnet. Because of that relationship, my Shakespeare urtext really is the sonnets of Shakespeare, which I read when I was young, specifically because of my name. And also it's his poems rather than um, as a poet, like I'm working with his poems rather than trying to deal with a play. And speaking of erasure, so often the sense of identity, and I want to go a little bit more into the, the multiple cultures and how language influences your imagination, how you view the world, but it would be remiss not to mention Canada Day, you know, one culture's assertion of identity also involves perhaps the, the colonization and erasure of other cultures underlying it. So it's just been 150 years. Of, I don't know how you prefer to describe Canada Day or that anniversary. Well, yeah, it's not something that on the day of, I feel like I'm celebrating the establishment like this, the constitution that got put into place in 1867. And fortunately, it seems like more and more people understand that. I saw a lot of orange shirts this Canada Day. I'll just explain for people who are listening. Canada has a history of having instituted residential schools a few decades after the country was established. Indigenous peoples were required to settle in various places, and the state came and removed children from their families and put them in these schools. And schools, I say, with, with big, huge scare quotes around them, because they were just institutions that helped break cultural bonds and, uh, and break language systems. Indigenous people in these territories called Canada have known the whole time that many children died in these places. But very recently, the number of children, graves of children have been found on residential school sites. And the shirts that, that remind us that children were at residential schools in the country are typically orange. People have been wearing orange shirts to remind ourselves of this shared history. 
And so on Canada Day this year, uh, there were quite a few people wearing those shirts to mark the day rather than the red and white flag. And if you could just then go into the different cultures that have influenced your imagination. Well, my own ancestry is French Canadian on my father's side. So I've got a white dad. And then on my mom's side, she's mixed Afro and Indo-Caribbean. So Afro and Indo-Guyanese. So I have grown up with an awkward relationship with Black culture, Canadian Black Caribbean culture, the Indo-Caribbean Desi culture. I do speak French. I got to go to an entirely French school when I was younger. So I've never lived in Quebec. I've never lived in a space where I was able to speak French regularly. But those, those are my ancestries. And so none of those are actually Anglo-Canadian, though I have been most schooled in English and have lived most of my life in Anglo-Canadian centers. So I always feel in relation to that dominant culture. I lived for two years in Korea uh, as well. So I think that just living in a first world East Asian country for a couple of years and learning some of that language has given me another perspective on Canada. Other writers have shared how the act of translation, it strengthens. It's amazing what can be lost and the misunderstandings in terms of perception, even with a pretty close language like English and French. But what did you find in Korea? How did that maybe open your eyes to different perspectives? My time in Korea has left me with a, a kernel for an entire novel that has never been written around what it was like to witness an expat culture that was not necessarily there to learn about Koreans, right? I'm visibly of color and I went with a white partner and and then we also, we traveled to the Philippines and to Thailand from Korea, which are two popular places for Korean expat teachers to go to. And so my novel and every, so much of what I saw was people exploiting white privilege in this really particular way that I hadn't anticipated, which is like, oh, what, what, what happens in Korea? I'm holding up my little scare quotes. What happens in Korea stays in Korea. And many, many teachers, like just enjoying a party life that involved, like they would say, oh, you know, you're a rock star here. If you're a white guy here, you're a rock star. And so there was a, a party culture that for me overlaps a little bit with um, just international sex trade and exploitation of bodies of color. So that was a huge takeaway from traveling in Asia and being in, in Korea. Language-wise, one thing that I loved about learning Korean was where the verb was placed. There was a, some lesson in a book for English speakers learning Korean explaining that in Korean, if you wanted to say, I saw the potato, you would say, I potato saw instead of, I saw the potato. And in this lesson, the book explained how culturally Europeans or English speakers have this sense of the subject, the viewer or the speaker acting out on the world. And the world is like the verb is originating from the speaker and going out and landing on the outside world. So my seeing happens to the cup in the English model. And in the Korean model, putting I and the cup before the verb, it suggests that the seeing is a relationship between the two actors. And they proposed that that is an entire way of being right? That the language expresses an entire ontology or way of seeing the world and way of being in the world that's more relational and less individualistic. So that, that experience and reading books, the influence of Nurbasi Philip, I think on my thinking can't be underestimated. She wrote a book called 
she tries her tongue, her silence softly breaks. And in that collection, there's a poem called Discourse on the Logic of Language. And it's this incantatory poem that talks about anguish, anguish, English is a foreign anguish, is a foreign language, my mother tongue, me, like my mother tongue me. And I heard that very early on in my poetic education. And, and so another Caribbean woman was presenting to me this frustration with English to try to express um, experience around being dominated by British colonial language and thinking and power. It's interesting going back to that, how grammar can give a longer view of history and perhaps have more respect to say a, a phrase that's been shared with us a lot, intergenerational knowledge and respect for generations gone past. And I, I don't know enough about uh, the Indian languages to comment on, on whether that holds true in, in those grammars as well. But it's it's so hard to pick apart how much the grammar and the languages that we speak have informed this colonial thinking that we may be a part of or our approach to problem solving or belief system spirituality if only we could separate it but it's in our mind yeah it's like it's like the operating system that's been programmed in I tend to think of one's core language as the one that you get angry in like if you fly off the handle and start yelling at someone, and for me, I can yell in French or I could yell in Korean if I, if I had enough presence of mind to do so. But if somebody like really upset me, like I, I had things stolen and there, there was actual physical violence that happened to me. I'm yelling at that person in English. I don't have the means to, to access anything else. And I think that sense of I can never know what I don't know because of the way that my language shapes my perception is part of what I was trying to do in this book by weaving the two texts, like having my experience hide a Shakespearean text. Like there isn't even really a verb for me or a word for me that accurately describes what the relationship is between my thinking and my writing and Shakespeare. And for me, that's productive and purposeful that I don't have a word for it. If I had a word for it, then I would just write that and I wouldn't be compelled to try and visually represent that sense that everything that comes out of my mouth is still on this original frame of British grammar. And I play some, I play a bit with say the word fair because of English's long history of equating fairness and lightness of skin with virtue and desirability and value. I think it's so interesting that you directly use Shakespeare's words, and it kind of makes me want to talk about the idea of originality. As an aspiring writer, I find myself stuck when I think like I need to make something original, and that concept can kind of be confining. But you seem to find creative freedom in using another poet's words. So I'm just wondering what your relationship is with the idea of originality. I think one of my early experiences in creative writing classrooms, if we go back to that image of being the only person of color in a room, I had the sense early on that all I had to do was speak about the experiences that I have that no one else in the room had in order to quote unquote, be original in the publishing space. In fact, I think I worked very hard to understand what the norms of what a literary book sounds like or what a literary book does outside of the content of the stories that I would have to share. I tried to learn that actually quite specifically and experimented with the idea that it would be fine if I could take this formula for literariness and plunk my own experience into it, then that would be original enough. And I think for most of my writing life so far, that's been true. And I would say lately, 
um, within the past decade or so, there is enough work out there around racialized experience, around being second generation. And now I'm like, oh, I, I can now I get to genuinely ask myself about the originality of my thought, because I think I now see cliches of marginalization. Like there, there are ways that young writers that, I, that I'm seeing talk about their isolation or their relationship to whiteness that, that have some commonalities. So now that those are being expressed in multiple places, we might have the opportunity to push in, in new ways to speak, of, speak in, in original ways. And I'm also wondering, do you see your work as dismantling these literary traditions? Because, I mean, you use different forms than the sonnet, or are you trying to, you know, use literary traditions to elevate your voice, if that makes sense? Maybe both. There's a way in which Shakespeare gets centered by this work anyway, and then reinscribed. And I knew that would happen when I wrote it. I mean, you mentioned a certain kind of freedom when sitting down to write and asking about originality and perhaps that constraint of working with someone else's work provided a bunch of freedom. I'm actually feel a little bit more scared now or aware when I don't have someone else to respond to when I'm creating new work. And then as far as dismantling, I've been asked like, oh, is your process analogous to breaking apart the text or is the fragmentation the message and that's a dimension that really works for me but it's not the entire thing like I think that the process can be interpreted or can be responded to in many ways I guess as far as the quote-unquote literary canon goes I'm just very interested in de-heroizing folks that that the writers of western american or western anglo tradition are held up like gods certain contexts and educational contexts like that they are untouchable as opposed to they were just some guy from that time who had access to publishing at that time and had those those skills like we have writers now who are able to be published and who get their work into the main stream and are publicized widely and will probably be read for years and years and years and it's not all about their literary genius just because someone manages to be the most visible, the most enduring even, does not necessarily translate only to their abstract literary merit. I think of uh, Linnaeus. Do you know who Linnaeus is? The guy who is responsible for Latin taxonomy of species. So that guy... Like we, people think of the Latin word for a species as its quote unquote, like scientific name. But at the time when the European explorers were going out and putting names on everything and collecting that information and trying to house it in a particular space, there were many more people than just Carl Linnaeus who had a little system, kind of like Google and Bing, I guess, right? Like there are different people trying to index this information. And Carl Linnaeus was particularly successful as a networker and as a businessman. And his system won out over a whole bunch of other people's systems. And now we take it for granted as instead of thinking, hmm, this is like VHS and beta, like beta was better, but somehow VHS was the thing for a while. And Linnaean taxonomy is the thing. And for us, Shakespeare is the thing. And he's great. Or Wordsworth is the thing or whoever. There's so much value in their work. But also they were just their people in complex economies and systems of power and society 
that mean that we end up with these these texts as our as our ur texts and i feel like that's a way to de-escalate the hero worship around the writing that we're studying and give more space therefore to an approach that takes power and connection and money into consideration so that asking questions about black women's voices asking questions about trade asking questions about contact with you know south asian ways of thinking or or like quranic texts or whatever that those questions become not tangential they're not marginal to some pure discussion of what Shakespeare is or what Wordsworth is. It's important to question how we establish the canon. And it's very hard, as you say, to pick apart what may have been marketing at the time, which may be with Linnaeus, but I do believe there's something, we just interviewed the classical theater of Harlem. I've interviewed theater groups in the Arab world who are still performing Shakespeare and finding something new with it. It's not to diminish the power of his craft to say any of that, right? It's, it's that brilliance takes a certain kind of soil to, to be able to live in. I think of Jacob Collier, whose work I love, right? The texts that we have from our British traditions also express that kind of positionality. Yeah, it's not to, it's not to diss, it's not to diss Shakespeare's writing. And I hope that that's there in my book as well, is that my training and my love of poetry grew out of reading Shakespeare. I used to read the sonnets over and over in high school, grade 11 computer science class. I made a program that brought up the sonnets like individually. (laughs) Yeah, I was cool that way. My name is Abigail. I'm an English major and a junior at Wesleyan University, where I was actually first exposed to Sonnet's work. I was completely blown away by their ingenuity, their use of language, and this process of overriding. It offers such an interesting way to pull on established poetics, to challenge them maybe, to enhance them maybe. Sonnet's skill allows their work to stand with and over Shakespeare's writing in a way that I find inspiring and evocative. To challenge myself, I tried to imitate their method and did my own overriding of Shakespeare's Sonnet 46. Its judicial language attracted me in light of the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs v. Jackson. It was unsurprisingly hard to work so closely with Shakespeare's writing and even after all my edits, I feel my piece is still directed more by the original sonnet than my words. It makes me even more aware of sonnet's skill, and I can admire how deftly they overcame the master. Yet and still, here is my attempt at an overwriting. It's mine, or so I thought. My hands cover my eyes, head bowed with the weight of news. My heart beats with furious rage at the thought of their faces and the sound of their names. My body no longer mine, but theirs. They are Clarence Thomas. They are Brett Kavanaugh. They are Neil Gorsuch. They are Amy Coney Barrett. They are Samuel Alito Jr. They are the deciders of the land and the owners of my body, keys fresh in their hands. This is a war we can all agree, but its cause is debate between few voices. A war against babies cradled in the womb, a war against women cradling their womb. This war will determine the mortality of cells and the morality of a nation. Everyone vote. I see the signs, but voting is only a mark. I want more than a paper shield to stop charging warriors wielding the penetrating power of men. How is the conquest of my body a civil political issue? I feel their whisper of power spread thy legs and close thy mouth. What a pretty picture, what a sight. My body, my choice, but not mine. My eyes, my heart, maybe, but their pussy. Collect thy prize, good sirs, oh, and you too, Justice Barrett. I picture my future without rights, a horror film, with would-be jump scares around the corners of every month, doctors behind bars, rapists in front of them, my heart, but not mine. 
their cold eyes judging and taking the freedom of my love, that court full of injustices who have done wrong by my rights. My body, my choice, my heart, my love, but not mine. To the charge of ambition, little miss, what doth you plead? Guilty. To the charge of sexuality, little miss, what do thou plead? Guilty. Take her away to save the entitlement in him. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Shut her up. Pretend her cries are lies. My only outlet becomes silly reclamations of self. A closet full of clothes because dressing my body makes me feel like maybe I own it. A pair of never-seen nipples pierced, pointing purposefully ahead. Silver chains with sharp crystals digging into my neck, reminding me of my less physical shackles. Black smudging around my eyes so I can never be perceived as meek. But it's all for naught. The defendant doth protest too much, that plea for help so boring, so 1970s. Find something new that we can deny. My heart, my love, my body, my choice. The lady doth protest too much. I walk the streets and brandish signs above my head. They say old things like women's rights are human rights. But the fetus of freedom curls up only in him. Spread thy legs and close thy mouth. Feet in stirrups, tongue shut in wires. Five judges surround and smirk at my bedside. See? Look how fair you are, how beautifully you lie supine, belly up, and to think you wanted a homicide. Roe v. Wade, the title of the time, the decision of decades, impaneled in court after court until it becomes supreme. A quest for autonomy, a freedom of self, now I laugh at the thought. The hope that all tenants of this land had a voice to say yes or say no, the heart and the body by their verdict only worth is determined. The clear answer obscured from watching eyes by the threat of religion and the force of tradition, the moiety of a nation, liberal and conservative, God and sinner, man and the object. Please, dear, why don't you be quiet? We are busy. A single decision impregnating a nation with hatred and shattering its heart into bleeding parts as thus the child of fear is born, screaming its screams and whimpering in anguish. This child will be mine or hers or theirs. Will it have our eyes, the ones brimming with pain and worry? When it is due and it is time to push, it will be thine as well as mine. You know who you are. It's birth no more than an expulsion of burden. Fear clawing outward, parting my body and my heart. It is so wrong the things you have determined as rights, mine and thine. But look inward and you will find, somehow, persevering love and determined anger. Maybe the people you are forcing into motherhood will become not mothers but still mama bears, ready to claw out the throat of your threats. The pat of a gavel is a laughable defense against our shiny claws and mighty roars. Have heart. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to the interview. How did you find your own voice in terms of music and find the courage to perform? You've been performing your poetry for a while, but this is a whole another step. I think that being a poet, taking poetry seriously is something that pretty regularly I have to ask myself, what am I even doing? Like, what is art kind of? big question because I have to teach it and, and do it. But ultimately, I think every poet who's really taking the craft seriously has to come to their own understanding of why it is that they decide to put something into words. Like, what is that impulse to speak? And then what is it that your spirit or your soul chooses and decides gets translated into this heightened speech. And then what even is the whole dimension of sharing that? While writing Sonnet Shakespeare, those questions did come up because it was such a long project. I'm like, what am I doing? Am I just trying to be an activist? Am I just trying to tell my story? Is that what I'm doing? If so, why the whole, the, the whole overwriting thing? But I've explained that like those, there's some intellectual reasons for choosing certain forms, 
but the impulse to speak in an elevated stylized voice has been compared to singing the relationship of poetry and song poetry and ode poetry and like bardic incantation those relationships are deeply spiritual and communal like the things that we sing so there are places in the book where i'm like is this is this therapy am i just am i just doing writing therapy and another place in the book talks about it as a percussive practice almost like massage like getting stuff out and then there's another poem that talks about the work as a yoga and thinking of poetry as a way of being very very intentional about breath that language is something that we share with each other through the breath first and that poetry is acknowledging that and being very intentional about that and then creating these documents of the most intentional breathing so i think from that the risk for me is of coming off the page and trying to do this very intentional sounding and breathing in real time without the page there to hand off and the text becomes not just the sound but my body in real time that is doing the communicating and that is so much more vulnerable can you set up a piece of music that came off the page that really needed to live as music and and not with the notation of how we should interpret it one of the first songs that i wrote was i was asked to write poetry for a little show that was like oh poets respond to music and we were given a pretenders album and my song was thumbelina and so i said well how about i respond with a song instead of a poem and so i did do that and wrote the song and making decisions that are about the vowel sounds repetition was new to me because i'm sitting there and like i've done that when i write whenever i write poetry i still do read it aloud to listen to how it sounds but it's not quite the same as as composing the sound in the moment weeping women turn to god for little children what woman am i the wretched or the blessed and women turn to witches to grant on little children what woman am i the crying or the crone Pretty little princess doesn't want to marry ugly. What woman am I? The twinkle or the toad? And pretty little princes don't want to live in darkness. What creature am I? The swallow or the mole? Fair fairy tale, fair fair fairy tale. Where does your black magic happen? Fair fairy tale, ah, fair fairy tale. Where does your black magic live? And once that song was done. I have to say at first I was like, do I just have a poem here that has some notes on it? And I don't know, now that when I perform, I just, I feel like I'm letting people in more than I was and I can set it up. But if I'm really feeling the impulse that led to the creation of it, it forces me to manage performatively in a way that I just don't haven't had happen very often in reading my own poetry it's sometimes difficult to pare away the prettiness or the beauty of poetry to leave that space for the rhythms and the beauty of music 
That's a great question. Like just this week, I was like, I think I'm finally at a place where I want to, where compositionally, I feel ready and genuine and authentic about wanting to put right music that's not for a human voice. So music that's not lyric. I think when I started this songwriting stuff, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work because I'm so lyric based. I care about the words so much and I'm going to write songs that are really just about the words and are storytelling. And if you don't hear the story, then perhaps musically it won't be super interesting to the ear. I think that's where I feel I've started. So I would say that now I'm getting enough sense of the form that when I hear a song, when I sing it out and hear the pieces in relation to one another, I'm now at the point where I'm like, I think it needs a piano voice here or a guitar voice here or strings or synth doing something different and saying something different. I spent a couple of weeks in Boston very recently. I decided to take myself to music school and I took like an intermediate piano harmony class. And the teacher said this, she's like, I say, da, 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 and then she would play the piano. I said this, now you say, and she used the verb say. Like, I don't have that much performative music pedagogy in me to be like, really, you're going to use the verb say for these melodic phrases with the piano? Beautiful. Okay. That's totally hip. I will add another little thing to that thought because I was so excited about, about it. I said to my musician friend, I was like, oh, this is like metaphor. You know, when I'm teaching students about metaphor, many of them think, that poetry is about using language in this pretty way that kind of obscures what the original thing is, like calling lips pink love pillows or something, like instead of saying lips, when really the poem just calls for them to say lips, they don't need to be called that because that's distracting. To teach them that when metaphor is kind of working, it's coming out of a genuine, like an authentic, I am trying to say this thing and I'm trying to express this thing to you, reader or fellow interlocutor. And I need to reach for this comparison in order to say what it is that I'm meaning to say or to show you the object in the way that I'm meaning to show you the object. I need this metaphor. And that helps the student to prioritize clarity in their writing and then reach for the kind of thinking and the observing of the world that that calls for metaphor. And then that's exciting because you're like, oh, what kind of new things do I want to say? Or like weird things that, that are hard to say that I want to get at. And then I use metaphor for it. So this moment of finally feeling like I don't want to use words for this. I'm genuinely authentically feeling like notes are what I want for this is so satisfying and it really does feel like for me poetically it's an extension of the vibe that that Nurbese Philip expressed of being like anguish anguish English is a foreign anguish and she's using rhythms to get at that feeling and to use like a tool that's outside of the language itself to, to get at that feeling. Finally, in my song practice, it's been a few years, but to finally feel as though notes will genuinely be somewhere that I can say things, like that verb that my teacher used, like I genuinely try to say something through instrumental voices is, is super exciting. I feel like a baby though, right? I feel like I'm saying basically like gaga <laughs> in guitar. <laughs> this discussion reminds me of Kalarno, you have a section called instrumental and I read Ma recently and it really made me think about just the materiality of language. I was really thinking about the auditory repetitions. I was thinking about the way that my mouth was moving and it was almost a bodily experience. I don't know. It's cool to think about when you make music, you're performing, but I guess poetry, it's almost like you're granting a reader that sort of performance. Is that an accurate take at all? 
yeah, I think so. I mean, I do feel like the best poetry, the poetry that I find to be good poetry does invoke a feeling of, of embodiedness in the speaker rather than just the speaker being in their head. So that quality that I think that I feel is there for most poetry, if not all poetry, is is definitely something that I wanted to heighten and foreground in my work in instrumental and thinking about the physicality of the sounds that we make. And like Ma as a phoneme, just to think back to like the question of Korean and stuff, right? Like Oma is the word for my mother in, in Korean. And that is just like all of us, that's what we got when we've got no teeth, right? So that we would all have that kind of grounding in, in sound and body feels like a lovely place for poetry to return us to always, like as readers to constantly be brought back into, wow, like, isn't language just phenomenal? Doesn't it just like, not just express ideas abstractly, but really is some kind of breathing practice around how we sensually inhabit the world? I feel like that's what poetry, yeah, what poetry does. Speaking of allowing us to blur and transgress barriers between ourselves and others, and also to redefine ourselves, I don't know how you like to describe your own gender identity and how it has evolved and grown in nuance over time. Yeah, I have been using they, them pronouns for maybe three, four years. That poem that I read to you first, when I first wrote it, I used she pronouns and I changed it. I am so happy that the people who have uh, done the hard work of living trans lives and being vocal have gotten us all collectively to the point where we can all ask ourselves about our gender in these interesting ways. Like, I said to a friend of mine who's a mom about my age, I was like, yeah, you know, when we were in undergrad, I feel like gender or like orientation around being bi or straight or gay was what we felt empowered to explore. And that even as a person who at that point was like, okay, I'm a girl and find myself desiring people with penises, that means I must be straight right? Like I wouldn't have questioned anything other than like, well, if I have this body and I desire that kind of body, then I am straight. But in undergrad, you could still make out with a girl and be like, I'm just experimenting. But now it seems to me that the opportunity to ask oneself about one's own gender is there. And as I learned, the more I learned about fluidity, the more I thought about my own relationship to the pronouns that I've grown up with, the more I was like, I think that these other pronouns really more accurately express how I've lived most of my life. And uh, yeah, so they, they feels deeply right for me now. Yeah. The importance uh, of names. We started this conversation a little bit with the conversation about grammar and how just redefining that can change your whole outlook. Also how others uh, see you. And in some ways in the beauty of language is also a kind, it can become a prison as well when people use it to define us and we have to reclaim that. There's a song that I'm working on right now that has a line. I'm a good girl. And good girl is so alliteratively pleasing. <laughs> it's, it's the ear candier thing to sing, but I'm finding I can't sing it. I can't say I'm a good girl. So I'm like, oh, okay, what am I going to say in that space? They say we all scream for ice cream and I'm a screamer too. Give me that hard waffle cone and two big round scoops. Now I'm a good them, I'll eat the veggies on my plate, but then I want that sugar in my bowl like I need to gain some weight. 
Now I've had every kind of ice cream From Rocky Road to chocolate I've had pistachio in the morning And black cherry very late You could say I'm a connoisseur of ice cream From gelato to sorbet There's just one base flavor I could scream for every day And that's vanilla I like that thick vanilla cream Give me vanilla Kinda comes from a black vanilla bean. I like vanilla. Oh, I like that thick vanilla cream. Give me vanilla. Kinda comes from a black vanilla bean. Now some say vanilla's boring. They want rum, raisin, candy, floss. Eating 99 flavors on one day makes them feel like they're the boss. But the thing about a good vanilla is you can't eat it plain. It makes a nice cream pie, mean milkshake, or sweet sundae. And I prefer to get creative, put in a little thought. This morning, rainbow sprinkles, tonight the hot fudge sauce. You could say I'm a connoisseur of ice cream from gelato to sorbet. There's just one base flavor I could scream for every day. That's vanilla. I like that thick vanilla cream. Give me vanilla. The kind that comes from a black vanilla bean. I want vanilla. Oh, I like that thick vanilla cream. Give me vanilla. The kind that comes from a black vanilla bean. So lately I've been saying I'm a good them. And then I just go on. Uh, because good non-binary person just doesn't fit syllabically in the line but I think that's another level of vulnerability because it feels like the poetic and literary community if you want to put an exploration of gender fluidity on the page that there's relative encouragement or safety to do that I can only speak for myself who like lives still presenting quite normatively so I'm speaking from a lot of privilege there but to live that fluidity in an embodied way in the space where you're just speaking it um, constantly is, is vulnerable. But again, I mean, it comes back to the theme that we started with for comfort, people do not speak the things that they are, right? Like me not mentioning blackness in a space. If I do not say that I am black, I can swim in that comfort that white supremacy has. So um, yeah those erasures happen and, and the songwriting really does highlight the physical effort, like the literal physical, emotional push and lift that has to happen every time I assert particular things. Yeah, just thinking about my experience as a student, and I know that you are a teacher, I'm curious where you would place classic writers, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, Whitman, in a curriculum, just because right now our curriculum is so, so centered on writers like that. Do you hope for a future where they're decentered, where they're not the baseline? Do I hope for a future where they're not centered? Um, you'd think I hadn't been asked this. It's just that every time I'm asked, I'm like, how do I feel about that? I think that it's important now, knowing that people have the information now, to know that they are teaching, at least in North America, right, on shadily colonized land. And that the act of teaching literature is an enculturation. We are creating encultured people or culturing ourselves, right? Giving ourselves story. And it's not that long ago, less than a hundred years ago, when you would go to a university and to be cultured would have been to learn a history of British literature. And then you could be fancy in a North American context because you knew that stuff. I think that the act of enculturing now, or like it always should have been this way, but enculturing on lands that have story that's older than the arrival of Europeans to that place, that that needs to be the spine 
of teaching story and storytelling or word craft or song craft. Again, if we're anchored in place, anchored in the ground that we're on and asking ourselves, what soil are my feet touching as I am teaching literature and teaching language? If that is where we're coming from, that really, I think, would inform how we teach the canon, like in what sequence we teach it, in what context we teach it, and how it sits in any kind of course arc, like we change course design too, I think. So it doesn't mean that I expect those works to just not be taught or to be forgotten. It's that I hope for recognizing that the history of teaching literature has really been about reinforcing Euro-Anglo dominance, like cultural dominance and value, and asking oneself, how do we live as people who participated and benefited from transatlantic slave trade and colonization? How do we teach story to ourselves now? Yeah, and what you're also speaking to is the importance of the oral tradition and why sometimes these other traditions were, were not written down or there was no author and so no authority and so it's not canonized because they also can't point to who the person was. Of course, it would be wonderful to make space for all the traditions. So as you think about the future and education, the importance of the arts and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what are some of those life lessons that were important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Wow. Well, I think that the connection of people's minds and hearts like their language system what they say and what comes out of their mouth i believe in staying connected to how one genuinely feels and like it'll just sound like biblical and parental to be like don't lie but for me i mean if you'd caught me on another day or before i was thinking so much about body stuff i would have said that my poetics were about deeply probing honesty or like trying to live on the page in the most honest way that I could over and over again. What does it mean to be as deeply honest as I possibly can? And when I think of what art can do and the arts, the artists that I admire and the artists that, that I love, they, they bring us into this place of showing negative energies and positive energies, evil and good, the the fullness of human experience. And they show it in a way that we register as somehow emotionally honest, right? Or like resonant with a way of seeing the world that allows us to understand justice or understand our desires for love or understand how it is that we connect in meaningful and satisfying ways. So for me, the arts are about maintaining that connection to our genuine needs in the face of increasing pressures to devalue our own feelings and our own softnesses and our own needs for like, I need to pay the bills, right? I need to make money and it's not to disparage jobs, but it's so easy to lose your soul. That's not a huge abstract thing to say, lose your soul. Like there are many, many, many people out there who've decided that pursuing or being in touch with what they want is really painful. And it's easier to just kind of turn off the interior connection to what we genuinely want. And I think it just gets harder the older you get and the more stakes there are in keeping relationships and jobs and stuff. So I think that's the value of keeping art in universities, in schools, is this value of the spirit, right? Of the breath, of breathing, of eye contact with each other, of being in a room and swaying to the same beat together. Like it can seem maybe simple but 
to hold that in genuine esteem is difficult in this world. So we got to hang on to that. Yes, honesty is one of the most difficult things to find in relationships. And you've certainly shared that through your poetry and music with us. So thank you, Sonnet Labay, for sharing what you value, the intimacy, vulnerability, and honesty of your poetry, which invites us to reimagine Shakespeare and our place within those stories to understand the beauty and struggle of our lives and the human spirit. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Mia, thank you so much for having me. And thanks, Abigail. The songs by Sonnet LeBay appearing in this episode, Fair Fairy Tale and Vanilla, are recordings of unreleased songs specifically prepared for this podcast. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Abigail Gray with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Abigail Gray. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.